Hey there, Recovery Nation. Producer John here. In this week's episode of Full Potential Now, Ted dives deep into the supernova of medication-assisted treatment. Join us as Ted sits down with returning guest Dr. Matthew Felgus, as well as newcomer Dr. Brian Lockin. I have to say, if you are at all curious about the opioid crisis and the surprising ways it may affect you or those you love, today's episode is absolutely jam-packed with practical knowledge. Stay tuned. You do not want to miss this. So how do we unravel the mystery of medication-assisted treatment in the fight against opiate addiction? According to preliminary data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, more than 72,000 people in the U.S. are predicted to have died from drug overdoses in 2017. That's nearly 200 people a day. That is nearly the rate of an opioid overdose death every 20 minutes. This has been termed the opiate crisis our nation is currently facing. The CDC reports that the most striking patterns at the national level are the recent increases in the number of drug overdose deaths involving a synthetic opioid called fentanyl. The CDC reports nearly 30,000 overdose deaths were related to this fentanyl in 2017. So with opioid overdoses and addiction on the rise, what can we actually do about it? A lot of people think sending people with prescription or opioid addiction to rehab offers an answer. But what exactly happens at rehab? And is it actually effective? I mean, most of rehab interventions provide education, teach skills, address mental health conditions, and help people develop a solid sobriety and relapse prevention plan, and then usually send them on their way. They may do a little course of outpatient treatment and be recommended AA and NA meetings. But with opioid addiction being so powerful, there might be actually necessary add-ons to this treatment that can make this approach way, way, way more effective. I know some people aren't hip to this idea of medication-assisted treatment and that a pill is really the answer to sobriety, but maybe in some ways it is. I mean, what if medication-assisted treatment could dramatically decrease relapses, increase sober time, improve people's ability to hold down jobs, and in general get their lives back together? Why not give medication-assisted treatment a shot? All right. I am here with Brian Locken. I'm board-certified in addiction medicine and in family medicine, and I've worked in the field of addiction treatment uh, for over 35 years. And also, I'm here with Matt Felgus. We're Matt actually at Pasquale's Restaurant in Madison. I'm still eating. He's still eating, but yeah. he's going to give his <laughs> yep, intro. I am. Uh, I'm Matt Felgus. I am board, also board certified in addiction medicine as well as psychiatry. Before I got into the medical field, I was a drug counselor, so I really uh, bring that perspective into my work, and I'm happy to be here. Well, it's awesome having you two here, especially being able to sort of like have some great Mexican food and talk about the state of medication-assisted treatment, which I know has really been on the radar with this whole opiate crisis thing. So I thought, let's just go to people that have been in this field doing a lot of medication-assisted treatment for many, many years and get their perspective. So uh, maybe we'll start out with the big first question, which is... um, where is it at? In your experience, medication-assisted treatment, helpful, not helpful, best ways to go? Well, it's certainly helpful for a lot of people. Um, I mean, it, a lot of folks are seeing it as a life-saving medication, buprenorphine specifically. I guess when you're, if you're talking medication-assisted treatment, there's, there's methadone, there's buprenorphine, and there's Vivitrol. And um, methadone's been around a long time. And that's very tightly regulated. So people have to go to a methadone program and stand in line every day with a whole bunch of other people who are on methadone, get a liquid dose of their medication, and then go home. It's pretty disruptive to people's lives, but that level of structure seems to be part of the methadone treatment uh, paradigm. And uh, you know, methadone's an opioid, so people are still physically dependent on an opioid. 
Um, if they stop methadone, they go through withdrawal. Buprenorphine is also opioid replacement, and the buprenorphine is an opioid, so people are still physically dependent on an opioid. And um, buprenorphine, people know it as Suboxone because that's the first one to be marketed. It's like Kleenex. <laughs> so, um, you know, and so buprenorphine as Suboxone is a combination with um, Naloxone, which is an opiate blocker that's in there ostensibly to keep people from injecting it and shooting it up so that then that would put them into withdrawal. I think it was primarily a way to get the DEA and the FDA to say okay to, to letting people prescribe buprenorphine for replacement therapy. I, I think it's I think it's there you know, for marketing purposes and a variety of other reasons because the reality is that people don't need it in there. The, the active ingredient in Suboxone and Zubsolve and yeah, all the others is the buprenorphine. And people don't get that. They think, well, I need the naloxone or it won't block other opiates. And that's not the case. I tell people that all the time. When people sign their informed consent, if I start them on a buprenorphine product, it's I spell that out, that it's not people. It's a misconception that the naloxone, or that's Narcan, that that is what blocks other opiates if you're on Suboxone or buprenorphine products. And in fact, it's the buprenorphine because it attaches to the opioid receptors much with greater affinity and tighter than other opioids. So if you're on buprenorphine and you use some heroin, it's going to be blocked. And it isn't the Narcan because Narcan's an injectable drug. That's the stuff we give to people when they overdose, either by nasal spray or injection for the most part. And so this, when it's in the, when it's in Suboxone, it doesn't, very little gets absorbed. Some does, and I see occasional side effects from that, but the active thing is the buprenorphine. So yeah, these people are still physically dependent on an opioid. So what do you think is like the big misconception? Like you've seen zillions of people that have come in for, for that treatment, so the medication treatment. So what do you think is like the common misperception around that? Well, I, I, I think within the some parts of the treatment community that's like, well, they're still addicted. And I say to them, no, they're not really addicted because they're physically dependent, but their behaviors change. They're not... They're not pawning their mother's jewelry for money. They're not breaking into my car. Their job, they, they have a job. Their relationship is repaired. In a perfect setting, they get their life back together. They stay on the buprenorphine for a reasonable period of time and then are able to taper off of it. Um, but there are no perfect settings. <laughs> so I thought, when I started doing this, I thought, okay, we'll put people on Suboxone for a year, taper them off it, and everybody goes home happy. And I joke that people are happy, but they're not going home. <laughs> they're staying on it. And people are saying, Doc, do I have to stay on this for the rest of my life? And I'm like, well, I don't know. And I'm like, you know, I get frustrated because I get people down to like a milligram a day from 16. And I'm like, do you want to try to go off it? Well, I don't know. And I think, you know, with, with comfort meds, it can be done. I think, Matt, I, you know, you, you were talking about what, how, many, how do you get people off? Well, I can, I'm happy to answer that. <laughs> which is, which I want to say before you jump into that, this is like something that I never hear stories about. Okay. I just hear stories about people getting on it and being... Like not using, they don't, but I don't train doctors. Yeah, I don't they, hear they that do other not, part that of the is not part of the training. They do not train doctors on how to get people off right. of it. There is controversy in the field on whether or not people should be encouraged to get off of it. I've been prescribing buprenorphine, Suboxone, since 2003, so 15 years now. And I would say the biggest, you would ask before, what is the biggest misperception that people have about Suboxone? And absolutely, Suboxone saves lives. It is an important part of treatment. However, it is not the be-all and the end-all. I think one of the biggest misperceptions people have about uh, buprenorphine is that that's all you need in order to do treatment. Buprenorphine is one piece, medication in general is one piece of the puzzle. 
you've got to be looking at what's going on in your life. I've in the I've been in the field for almost 30 years because I was a drug counselor before I went to med school, and quite honestly, I don't think I've come across anybody with an addiction issue that does not have what I call the big four driving the addiction. And the big four, either anxiety, depression, trauma, or a sleep problem. You have to treat what's underlying the addiction. This is why there are people that believe they can never get off of buprenorphine is because they're not treating what's driving the addiction. So, so, so the thing underneath, because yeah. you know, some of the clients I've seen, I mean, it seems like, all right, I'm doing a bunch of heroin. My life is shit. Um, my life is out of control. It's going down the tubes. And it's like, it's almost like, let me give me a pill to make... Yes. To remove right. that, it almost fits with almost like the addiction mindset. Like, it give me does. a pill. Not only, like, in the first place is to get high, but now it's like, give me a pill to stay in recovery. Yeah, well, it's, it's give me a pill to not get sick, not feel sick, not crave, not use. But, you know, Matt's absolutely right that the treatment of coexistent mental health issues and treatment for addiction is more than just taking a medication. And so that's, you know, and I, I have a lot of, I work with a lot of counselors that we, we have at, at the program that I work at, people are expected they're going to participate in outpatient counseling. So I see outpatients on buprenorphine products and then they do counseling as well. And I would say yeah, the people who are more engaged in counseling are doing better. And sometimes the counselors are the ones pushing them. Hey, I think you could go down on this. Talk to Doc about de- decreasing your dose. And I work with people and try to get them down. But it, sometimes it's a struggle. They get down to a low dose and they don't want to take that next step. And um, what's, what's your, tell me, Matt, you know, you're, you have a technique specifically yes. to get people off. Well, and some of, a lot of that is education. When I start in the beginning, I am telling people this is how I work with buprenorphine. We're going to stabilize you. We're going to get you on the dose that you are not in withdrawal. And then what we're going to do very slowly over time, I would say the average person that I'm working with is on buprenorphine. It's probably about four to five years. So it's much longer. A year is too too quick. And the reason a year is too quick is because it takes much longer than that to actually deal with and adequately treat the underlying condition. Whether, you know, anxiety or doing trauma treatment working on mood stabilization. I mean, there's there's a whole host. And honestly, any therapist that works with trauma will tell you it takes years to do good trauma treatment. They're actually starting to do studies now on the amount of trauma in individuals with addiction issues. And this is not a surprise to me, but the, the research is very, it's, it's much higher than uh, anybody expected. Sure. Uh, they just did a study in Wisconsin. The Pew Institute started looking at that, and I think they found it was over 80%, which blew them away. I would say it honestly, clinically, I think it's over 90%, although I don't have the studies to back that up, but it's what I've seen clinically. That takes years. So what I tell people, buprenorphine is an opiate. Like any opiate, it will numb out pain. It will also numb out emotions. So every time you step down, you are going to feel a little more of what's inside yourself. You have to be working with a counselor. There are some programs that give people intensive treatment when they first start on buprenorphine, which can last anywhere from four weeks to three months. And then they say, okay, you're finished with the treatment. We're just going to keep you on buprenorphine now. And this can go 10, 15 years. And my, you know, I I would say that that's, that's not adequate treatment. If you're going to have people slowly step down, every step down, they have to land in that step. You have to be working on those issues that are coming up. So you're going to feel your anxiety symptoms a little more. You got to be working on anxiety with a counselor to really get that under control. And then you do the next step. So my steps down, I would say, are anywhere from three to six months. So that is like really fascinating to me when I think about it because it's almost like I've never even thought about that as a therapist that you would have like like hypothetically somebody starts out at like 16s yep and then you step down to 12 or 
10 or 8, that you actually coincide the treatment understanding with that step down, realizing that, hey, as you step down, this is what you can kind of expect. Right. Yes. Versus, and I'm just on this pill, and then what I've seen is people just cling to it. Right. Just like, right. don't, yes. I don't want, my life is good after six right. months. Yes. Do not mess with the meds. Exactly, right. and right. I understand that yeah. mindset. No, that's a very good point, because, you know, I, I work with several different counselors, and their, their styles are quite different, and so um, their approach when somebody's tapering down, you know, one counselor pushes them a little harder, other counselors, but maybe I, I'm thinking that I, I will have a conversation with the counselors about the expectation of symptomatology becoming more pronounced as we step down. And that they need to, anytime we step down, they may need to intensify their involvement in the counseling. Yes, educate, educate, and I think for the patient, the education piece is huge, because if they understand what's happening to them, because one of the things that happens when somebody's got an addiction, if somebody with an addiction is experiencing anxiety, they think it's withdrawal. That's very much, and part of that is withdrawal is traumatizing. But you can be having anxiety symptoms if you've had a past addiction. Your brain is going to associate that with, oh my God, I'm in withdrawal, I need more medication. So So they mistake with anxiety for withdrawal. Yes, because if you open up a book, if you opened up a mental health book and read the symptoms of anxiety, And then, you know, you're going to get about 20 symptoms and you open up an addiction book and you read the symptoms of opiate withdrawal. They are almost the exact same symptoms. And I encourage my patients to do that. People don't realize that. But I encourage my patients to do that. So the education and the support is huge. And also, I want, if somebody is due to step down on a particular month, but they're going through something very stressful in their lives, we postpone the step down. So some of that is me being aware enough to work with the patient to say, you know, this isn't a good time. Your girlfriend just left you. This is not... You know, so you base it on life services. Yes. Well, like another agency I worked with way back in the day, they just basically said, two years you're on Suboxone, then you're off. Right. You need to prepare I don't 18 months yeah, to no. get off, but it's not taking in right. circumstances where the person is on the step down, like where they're, yep. they could have anxiety, they could have depression, and you know other life issues. Some of those yes. folks have come to me saying, well, I've worked with this doc, <laughs> and he tells me, right, he told me up front, you'll be on this for a year or two, and then you're off. If you don't like it, go somewhere else. And so then they come, you know, I'm like, well, we'll work with you differently than that. So, And I do the same yeah. thing, and I probably have a reputation in the community that I'm not going to keep people on Suboxone, but I will, you know, I'm going to work with people. There can't, I, I do not support an arbitrary number, especially if that doctor says you're going to be off in two years. In 18 months, you need to start preparing, but they haven't done adequate treatment on their underlying anxiety, trauma, depression for those first 18 months. They've just sat there. That's, that's, that's not... Yeah, that's there's not also docs treatment. who um, just prescribe Suboxone or other buprenorphine products and don't insist on counseling. So let's say I took the plunge and got on Suboxone. Why would I ever get off of it? I mean, I've heard of people going to the methadone clinic daily for 10 or 15 years. Their lives have improved, and they are having a decent life again. Their relationships are better, they're working, they're feeling good. However, some people still see them as drug addicted, and that they've maybe traded their heroin for methadone or suboxone, and that they should get off of all the drugs if they're going to be legitimately sober. Heck, the person on methadone or suboxone might even go to an AA meeting be given a hard time by AA members for still being on methadone or suboxone, and that they're not really truly fully sober. Plus, what if their outpatient counselors were encouraging them to get off suboxone because typical substance abuse treatment realistically is about 6 to 12 months, and if they go beyond that, insurance is not going to pay for those follow-up sessions. And if they decided to try to get off suboxone, wouldn't they want to drop down first slowly with the dose amount? bring it down less and less, and then eventually just get off of it. 
I mean, I don't think like this is a far stretch. So if they did drop down on their Suboxone medication, how would they do it? Yeah, there's other, yeah, there's a, a few prescribers who are just giving out buprenorphine um, and recommending counseling perhaps, but they're not, they don't have counseling in-house, they're not insisting on it. So that's a, you know, an approach that I'm not particularly fond of. So then you would have like some, do- so it's, as I'm listening to this and just in my own experience, so you really kind of have a hodgepodge out there. You have some agencies drawing a hard line, probably mainly due to the fact they don't want to keep all these clients on their caseload saying, two years you're out, and then they turn those people loose and they start searching out people. They might stumble into you, Matt. They might stumble into you, Brian. You guys have a general idea of you're more willing to kind of keep people on with this idea they're going to get off of it. But then they could go down the block. It could just be they look on the Internet. Yeah. I've lost patients. Patients do seem to know different philosophies. Yeah. I get patients that come to me saying, I like your philosophy. This is how I want to do it. I get other people that wind up because I'm in their HMO network. And once I start stepping them down and they feel a little bit uncomfortable and they're not motivated to do that deeper work, they will go down the street to the doctor that will double their Suboxone dose and not ask them to do any counseling. There's a point that I want to make because among in the 12-step community, AA and NA, there are people within that community that, you know, there's a debate. They'll say, oh, anybody that's on opiate replacement isn't really in recovery. And I hear that a lot, where if somebody's on Suboxone, you know, they'll be, they'll, if they go to NA or AA, they're being told you're not really in recovery, you're on Right, you're on I, I have patients who just don't tell the people that they're yes. on Suboxone. And that's one way gonna, to do it. Yep. You're going to get figuratively beat up at a meeting. Yes. What I, what I tell my patients, though, recovery is a state of mind. And the truth is, you can have two people who are taking Suboxone. One of them is just taking it, does not do any counseling, does not ever want to lower their dose, and nobody's asking them to do it. And their mindset is the same. Uh, They may even be splitting up their Suboxone and taking it four times a day, which is how they used to use their heroin or their oxycodone. That individual, honestly, that's not a recovery mindset. That individual's not in recovery. You can have another person on Suboxone that may even be on the same dose to start that is doing anxiety work, that's meeting with a counselor, that may or may not be on medication to help depression if that's warranted for them, but they are really in, they're in a recovery mindset. So I would say, you know, when I get asked, well, are, are people that are on opiate replacement, are they in recovery? My answer is always that depends. It depends on the person and it depends on yeah. their mindset around their treatment because the answer could be yes or no. It really depends on the mindset. Yeah, yeah certainly there are strident people in uh, <laughs> NA and, or other 12-step um, programs that feel absolutely if people are on buprenorphine replacement that they're not in recovery. I mean, I've had that argument with people and, they, you know, generally people who've been in opioid recovery, recovery from opioid addiction for many, many years said, well, I did it without buprenorphine. So and that's, you know, I think they're still dependent on that. And like, physically they are, but, you know, behaviorally, they, yeah, they, they may or may not be in a good recovery place, like Matt said. Have you ever seen it go rogue from the standpoint that somebody is on Suboxone and then they go to NA, they get a hard time about being on it, that it actually influences them to eventually just like get off of it, but prematurely and it leads to not such good things? I mean, that's kind of a yeah. crazy scenario. I don't think so. I, I think it's more likely they'll stop going to NA. They'll stop going to NA. Yeah, I've, I've seen people go rogue where they're like, you know what, I just don't want to be on this anymore. I'm tired of coming in every month. I'm tired of doing yeah. the counseling. That usually winds up happening with buprenorphine, it is covering over. Sometimes people think they're doing better than they are because let's say you have anxiety, which is very common, and you're on eight milligrams of Suboxone, that Suboxone is covering over a good bit of your anxiety. So you feel like you've got less anxiety than you do because opiates, and Suboxone is an opiate, does numb out. It numbs out pain, emotions, like any other opiate. So they think they're 
doing better than they are. They're like, you know what, I just want to get off of this. They stop abruptly, and not only are they, you know, dealing with cravings, but now all of a sudden they're kind of, they've got rebound anxiety. So they're dealing with a very high level of anxiety that they're not used to, they're not prepared to deal with. This is going to lead to cravings. More likely than not, it's going to lead to relapse. And so then people get the idea, oh, I can never get off of Suboxone. And I've seen that happen to doctors where the, if the doctor's not truly understanding the mental health components of addiction, the doctors will say, oh, I can't ever get anybody off of Suboxone. The reality is when people try to taper themselves off, they take too big of steps. Right. You can't go from eight milligrams to four milligrams. You can't go from two milligrams to zero milligrams. The problem with the films, the smallest dose that they have of the films are two milligrams. Also, oh, somebody has to jump so, off from two to zero. Well, no, they can cut them in half. They can okay. cut a film it in half. It says it right on the film, do not cut. I, I ignore I that. Well, of course, of course. <laughs> and, yeah. but, and I don't know why it says that, no, but that's... No idea. Patients never go rogue. They right. never yes. do their own thing. <laughs> but the other, you know, I, I have people, my final dose on Suboxone, and this is a gradual step down, people are cutting those twos into eights. I had one nurse that did 16s, but normally eights. I, they're cutting them into eights. That is a once daily dose. People do not need to take buprenorphine more than once a day. It's got a long half-life. So they're cutting it into eighths. And then what I do is after they're doing that every day, they actually stretch it out. They go every day and a half and then every other day. And then they're, they're, they're usually able to come off of it. And this is just... There's no research on this. I've uh, tried to do some workshops on this. Uh, you know, sometimes, sometimes um, the powers that be are interested. Sometimes they don't want to deal with it. But this, I've, this has been a successful recipe for me in guiding, because all I am is a guide, in guiding people to get off Suboxone. But they're, they're, all, they're doing counseling. Overdosing is the biggest concern with opioid use. So if I were a parent and my adolescent son or daughter had gotten into heroin prescription opioids and I had to endure the emotional roller coaster, the constant worry for months or maybe even years about them accidentally overdosing from their use and endure all the negative impact on the relationships around them, what could I possibly expect in substance abuse treatment? If they were suddenly given a magic pill like Suboxone, that allowed them to stay sober from opioids. The magic pill blocked certain receptor sites which prevented them from getting off on heroin or prescription opioids. They were in fact safe again and sober. Wouldn't they live happily ever after? So what would be your shout out to, let's say, you know, parents? They have like 18, 19, 20 year old Who's hooked on heroin, they go to the typical treatment center and then they get on Suboxone. Like, what would you, just in your guys' like own opinion, your own, your own experience, what would you tell those parents that, I mean, not that you could tell them exactly what to expect, but what would be like good advice for them to know as their kids kind of going through this process? think they need to know that their kid may, is going to be on it longer than they want as parents. Parents will think that, okay, I got my kid on this Suboxone, um, get him some treatment, get him off the Suboxone, and then things are fine. And it's going to take more than that. Like Matt says, there's, there's going to need to be work on mental health issues. There's going to be need to be work on, on recovery from addiction. Yes. And the Suboxone is just a tool, or the buprenorphine is just a tool to keep them stable as this stuff starts. And parents, they need to understand that their kid's going to be on it for a few years in all likelihood, but they can't, you know, we can get them off it. I'm, I'm intrigued by Matt's approach to get people down to a dose as low as 0.25 milligrams a day and spread that out. I'm thinking, because I get folks down and then they're like, yeah, they get to one milligram and then I go, how about you cut it in half and see? According to the CDC, sleep plays a vital role in good health and well-being throughout your life. 
During sleep, your body is working to support healthy brain function and maintain your physical health. In children and teens, sleep also helps support growth and development. Healthy sleep patterns have been found to potentially prevent cancer, reduce stress, reduce inflammation, make us more alert, improve our memory, mood, and even possibly lose weight. So with somewhere between 50 and 70 million Americans suffering from sleep disorders, and around 4% of adults using prescription medication to get a good night's rest, what do you do when you've been addicted? And if someone needed help with sleeping when getting sober, what would be the best medications to take which are non-addictive? Now, what have you seen in terms of like, like you talked about like your big four, but it's, it's something that I was not really in tune to in, in my years as a therapist, is this idea of people who have sleep problems. Huh? And I saw this at this residential center that we worked together, that that was like a big, big thing. Like people could yes. not, they were, they were so-called, you know, now in recovery, but they were kind of miserable because they couldn't sleep. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, we hear that a lot. But I mean, they're, okay, they're in a residential treatment program, so they're not at home. You know, they're in a, a bed that may be a little more industrial. <laughs> they're in, a, they're not in a home environment. There's a roommate that they don't know, and so in those settings, I can understand why people may have some difficulty sleeping. And um, you know that you try to resist using problematic sleep medications. But sometimes people really do need to sleep. And so, I don't know, what do you do? I, residential, always, yep, we do trazodone. There's always non-addictive yes. sleep medications. Right. Those addictive ones have no place no. in recovery treatment. I mean, no. I say that very strongly. And a lot of the ones they advertise on TV, all those Zs. All uh, the Zs. <laughs> Ambien, Ambien, Sonata, Lunesta, those are all addictive sleep medications. Right. Right. They, they say, well, they're not a benzodiazepine, but as soon as they said that, and I realized that the treatment for a, an ambient overdose was uh, the benzodiazepine reverser, I'm like, okay, maybe it's not a benzodiazepine, it's but the receptors don't know their chemical form. It's yeah. a, it's <laughs> a, they call it a selective benzodiazepine. Yeah. Great timing here with the sirens. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. almost as if somebody has like overdosed or something. Well, and the other thing, those, medica- those medications are, can be deadly if you mix them with opiates. Benzodiazepines, that's the Xanaxes, the lorazepam, any of the PAMs, including Valium, uh, which is diazepam. All of those PAMs, if you mix them, and this blows my mind how many doctors are not aware of this, if you mix a benzodiazepine and an opiate, both of those medications cause respiratory depression. One plus one equals five. People stop breathing in their sleep and they don't wake up. It is too medically dangerous. That is probably the one area in my practice that I will not compromise on if somebody has a benzodiazepine in their system or has a prescription for a benzodiazepine, they have to come off of the benzodiazepine before I will prescribe them buprenorphine. Yeah, I try to get I try to, I've told people that. I said, you're going to need to stop this before we can put you on buprenorphine. But then I've inherited some people over the years that are on buprenorphine and a benzo. And it's tough. You know, I've, I've said to someone, well, we're, we'll give you something instead of the benzo. Plan ahead. We're going to get you on the benzo. Yes. We're going to put you on gabapentin or Seroquel or something. That's, and There's you know. always an alternative. Benzodiazepines are highly, highly addictive. And I think there's a real minimizing of that in the medical community because they have been around for sure. so long. Well, I think even just in, in my walk through, through the field, um, benzos really fly under the radar. Like when we get somebody in, we're more focused in on the opiate addiction or maybe they had a cocaine addiction or maybe they had some alcoholism going along with that. Um, but I think the sedatives really fly under the radar so much. They They're do. actually kind of some of the most dangerous. They really are, and people, I think, are very unaware. I see people that have been on Xanax for 25 years, 25, 30 years. Nobody should be on that medication for that long, but it happens, and people do have this mindset, well, my doctor's giving it to me, it must be okay. 
Unfortunately, I think if you did a survey of non-addiction trained primary care docs and asked them, name three medications that you would prescribe for anxiety, my guess is the majority of them would name three benzodiazepines. Doctors have not been trained to use other medications for anxiety. And a lot of those medications, they have another use. that Their primary indication is not anxiety. Something like clonidine, which is a blood pressure medication, very good for anxiety. Gabapentin, although gabapentin is getting some bad press because there's reports that people are abusing gabapentin. Anything that lowers anxiety can be abused if you take enough of it. There was a point where people were eating like 10 to 20 Prozacs and it was poor man's speed or something like that. I mean... Poor man's lobster. You know, know, I mean, you you can abuse there's certain antidepressants that are stimulating that you can actually snort and I've seen people do that. So I've probably seen it. I don't want to give anybody any ideas. I don't want to give any what it is. But there are there are you know common non-controlled substance garden variety antidepressants that you you know that feel like crack to people if you use them certain ways. So anything you you need to be mindful of somebody. If I put somebody on gabapentin and they come in and they're taking four times what I recommended. I'm getting them off of the gabapentin. Right, Anybody right. can abuse anything, and we as docs yeah. have to be aware of that. So what would be scary for a doctor who prescribes medications to treat opiate addiction for 30 years? I mean, are they stone-faced, robotic, and have, like, no feelings even if they lose clients after so many years? When they get home, do they just forget about their clients and carry on with their day? Or are they still maybe just as concerned about their clients as they were when they first got out in the field? And was their training to provide medications for opiate addiction enough? And has this training changed that much since then? Or are doctors with minimal training for medication-assisted treatment these days left to wing it at times? I wanted to ask you guys both kind of like, I don't know if that's necessarily a personal question, but, like, is there anything that scares you about this whole opiate crisis? I mean, you guys have been in the trenches. You've, I mean, between you guys, you got, what, 60-some years in the field. Um, is there anything that scares you about this, the, way, the way it's all set up these days? I mean, the scary thing is all the people that are dying, you know, and, yes. and it's huge. I mean, yes. you look, I check the obituaries every day in the paper in part to make sure I'm not in there, but also to, I see all these young people and it's, it's yeah. heartbreaking. And, you know, my wife will say, there's a couple of 22-year-olds and 28-year-olds, so she can't, she's not asking if they're patients of mine because I can't tell her, but she always points them out to me. And a lot of these are people that say, died unexpectedly at home. And yeah. those, some of those are suicides, they always have been, but a hell of a lot of them now are accidental opioid overdoses. And more and more you're seeing a few people put that in the obituary and say, so-and-so struggled with addiction, um, for many years, and they, they died of an opioid overdose. But most yes. of the time, it's just died unexpectedly at home. And that, yes. you know, if, if you're 22 or 28 or 34, and you die unexpectedly at home, it wasn't a natural death. So no, no, I see that too. I mean, I, I have lost patients, you know, that have relapsed, Absolutely. they've died. Um, what I have more of are people that are in treatment that are doing pretty well, but they're losing people around them. Addiction tends to run in families, or if you have an opioid addiction, your chances are you've got a peer group of people that are using. So I see a lot of people that come in grieving and grieve, you know, feeling those powerful grief feelings is a trigger for relapse. So we talk about that, but people come in grieving because somebody close to them, whether it's a family member or a close friend, or, you know, somebody they used to use with right. has overdosed. That happens often. We hear that a lot. And yes. I, I've said to some young people, hey, you've lost people. Oh, yeah, so-and-so, my cousin, my best friend. I'm, what makes you think it's not going to happen to you? And it's because they're young enough that they think they're bulletproof. It isn't, you know, that, I'm like, how? Or, or, I have patients that have been resuscitated that I'm like, wasn't that enough to get you to stop using? No. Or we just a few times. Yeah, a few times. Overdose, and you're yeah. Like, Overdose, yeah. Yeah, and you, they almost like think like nothing of it. Yeah. 
This generation, I think, you know, I would say almost anybody, whether or not somebody's got an opioid dependence, this generation, I don't think you can talk to somebody in their 20s that doesn't know somebody right. that has died from an overdose. It's just, yep. it's that common. It is There's, that common. So that, that, that's one of the things that scares me, you know, concerns me the most as well. Um, the other... Probably another issue is that we need more training in, we need physicians to get more trained in addiction. There is this push to get physicians certified to be able to prescribe buprenorphine. This does not mean that they, they take an eight-hour class, they do not learn how to deal with, addic you know, with addiction or addiction treatment. They just learn, they learn how, how to, to prescribe Suboxone or other buprenorphine right. Yes. <laughs> right. Maybe, maybe talk about, yeah, like when you guys got trained and when you started prescribing, what was that like? Well, I, I've been in the addiction field for so long, I kind of just evolved into it uh, early on and, and kind of self-trained and took classes and got certified. The, starting the buprenorphine thing, because I was board certified in addiction medicine, I didn't even have to do the eight-hour online right, course. Did I. I did it because I wanted to know more, and I did a bunch of reading, but initially I still didn't know anything about what I, what I was doing, it was, and I got more comfortable but I think a lot of docs, primary docs in particular, they, get, they take the eight-hour course, oh, now I can prescribe buprenorphine, but there's no support for them. They don't know what to do. Their partners in their clinic don't like those people that they're treating, and um, their partners don't understand what they're doing, and they feel kind of out there alone. I, I know that I felt that when I started doing buprenorphine treatment, it's like, who do I bounce these ideas off of? Because I'm the only doc at the place I work, for the most part. We have an occasion that we have some psychiatric backup time, but I've, I just, I, I needed someone to talk to about it. And there are some mentored groups, and, and within my professional society, Wisconsin Society of Addiction Medicine, I've, been, you know, I've talked to people over the years. But also, you learn a lot by doing. So, but I think a lot of docs just aren't comfortable with it. They get the eight-hour thing. And then they don't know what to do. Right, and that's, they don't have addiction training. And um, like I said, I, I would agree with everything Brian is saying about this. I did not have to take the eight-hour class either. I was, I was a drug counselor. This was just a very natural progression. But when Suboxone first came out, the company gave us information that turned out not to be true. Uh, they, when uh, I've been prescribing this since 2003, they told us, oh, it's not hard to get patients off of Suboxone. Do you remember <laughs> yeah, that, Brian? Yeah. That was, that turned that out. That was the word back. <laughs> yeah, I knew better. Yeah. Um, but I remember just getting into the field. I finished uh, my residency training in the late 90s. So I came in in the era where, you know, OxyContin was out there and the medical societies were saying we're under treating pain. Uh, you can't possibly get addicted if um, you're not. You're only using it for pain. I was an old drug counselor. I was blown away by this. And honestly, to this day, I have not joined the AMA because I felt like they were complicit back in the late 90s. According to data from the 2012 National Health Interview Survey, 11.2% of American adults which is 25.3 million people, have experienced some form of pain every day for the past three months. The study also found that even more people, 17.6% of American adults, suffer from what they would classify as severe levels of pain. The U.S. makes up 5% of the world's population, yet consumes almost 80% of the world's prescription opioid drugs. Prescription opioid drugs contribute to 40% of all U.S. opioid overdose deaths. Moreover, more than one out of three average Americans used a prescription opioid in 2015. Despite all the growing concerns that these medications are promoting widespread addiction and overdose deaths, nearly 92 million U.S. adults, or about 38% of the population, took a legitimately prescribed opioid like OxyContin or Percocet in 2015, according to results from the National Survey on Drug Use and Health. So what does a person do if they have pain and they get prescribed opioids to deal with that pain? Well, yeah, the, the pain thing, the, the pendulum swung. The, I mean, I, I understand it somewhat that there are people in pain and perhaps some people were undertreated, but 
all, the, it was all this pain stuff was funded by Purdue Pharma and the other people who manufactured these drugs with the message that pain is the fifth vital sign. I mean, I was an ER doc half time for 30 plus years too. And I hear, the, hear this pain, the fifth vital sign. I'm like, well, no, it's not. That's bullshit. Vital signs are objective. Pain is subjective. And so the pain scale. And I would have nurses interrupt me and say, Brian, can we give something for pain to the patient in uh, trauma room four? And I go, are they in pain? And they go, well, they rated their pain a seven. I said, I was just in there and they were texting with somebody. So I'm like, you know, people, but, but, and the first question on the, on the, the, like, they'd, they'd send out questionnaires, hospitals, questionnaires to the patients. How do you feel your pain was treated in the emergency department? And that was the first thing on how we were being ranked was if we treated their pain adequately. It was just, it was crazy. And so we were told, yeah, the, all this stuff, you got to treat pain. And I never bought it, you know, so. <laughs> well, doctors were let go if they were inadequate. So a doctor yeah. that did the right thing and somebody was coming in, right. had an obvious opioid addiction, was med-seeking, the doctor said, no, I'm not going to just keep giving you opioid, that opioids. That doctor got rated poorly. Right. He didn't treat my pain well enough. Right. So what's your guys' perspective on, like, because I think, like, people coming in with an opiate addiction and having legitimate pain management issues, either for, uh, you know, back, a disc, you know, fused spine, whatever it is, um, what's your perspective these days on the best way to treat that? That's a tough one because um, I do have some... I have some patients that are young people that were using opiates recreationally and got addicted. And then I have some people that are older patients that have that are chronic pain people. And they were going to the doc and getting prescribed opiates, and then they found they needed more and more and more because they developed tolerance, and the docs kept prescribing more. And then at some point, they're like, i got to get off this stuff. And then we switched them to Suboxone or some buprenorphine product, and they're not in withdrawal. And then I'll say to them, you know, like a month or two or three later, hey, how's your pain? And they go, it's manageable. It's, it's not gone, but I'm dealing with it. So, I mean, buprenorphine's an opioid, so they do get some analgesic effect from it. It's not as strong as the opioids they're used to, be, that they're used to taking, but I don't know, my experience is that, that they somehow they are able to, to deal with pain just on the buprenorphine. So it doesn't make like... Are you saying, like, it doesn't make the pain go away completely? No, and but, it never did. But, Opioids don't. Yeah, it brings <laughs> it down, but it's a manageable level for it. I think so. What do you think, Matt? Well, you know what happened? Medicine has finally caught up with the idea that long-term opioids for pain, this is separate from addiction, long-term opioids for pain is not the best treatment. Right. So they're using other things. They're going to alter, you know, you know what you would call alternative medicine, things like acupuncture, neuromuscular therapy. There's a bunch of them. That's not really my specialty, so I'm not up on all of them. But just better management. Opioids, I think, were originally intended and how they're prescribed in the rest of the world outside of the United States is just as a medication short term for acute pain. Because what happens, and and I've seen this happen actually in my uh, buprenorphine patients, the um, buprenorphine or any opioid actually makes you more sensitive to pain. So it hypersensitizes your receptors, you become more sensitive to it. And I've seen this in a couple of my uh, Suboxone patients that have legitimate pain issues. They get below a certain amount, usually it's about four to six, and they say, you know, they come in, Doc, you're not going to believe this. My pain actually feels like it's getting less. I can't believe this is happening, but I've had enough people say this that I, I believe it, and I'm not a pain specialist. I had one woman who said um, she had a you know serious back issue, been in a lot of motor vehicle accidents. She came in and said, you're never going to get me below 10. She was on 12 milligrams at the time. I, she transferred from another prescriber. She said, you're never going to get me below 10 milligrams of Suboxone. That's it. I am going to relapse. I can't tolerate it because of my pain. Right now, she's on 3 milligrams. This was a couple of years later. And she was one of the people that came in and said, I can't believe it. Once she got to 6 milligrams, she found that her pain levels had decreased substantially. 
So, and, I, and I, like I said, I've had several people, I've had several people where that's occurred. So why would someone get in the addiction counseling business, let alone the addiction medication-assisted treatment business? I've always heard of ideas to be a doctor, lawyer, teacher, or psychologist when I was growing up. But I don't ever remember hearing a medication-assisted treatment provider for people with opiate addiction when I was in my high school counselor's office wondering about what I should do when I grow up. You guys have both been in the business so long. Hear from each of you on what got you into the business and why have you stayed so long? Because there's probably colleagues that have kind of like got burned out. Burned out of science. <laughs> I, I kind of just drifted into it. I did my family practice training and I started doing emergency room work. And a friend of mine who worked at Teluria, the place I work as a medical director, said, hey, can you be our medical director? And I said, I don't know. What does that mean? He said, well, come out once a month and sign charts. I was like, I can do that. And then can you come out once a week and see a couple of patients? Hey, we're going to put in a bid to run detox for Dane County. Can you be the medical director of the detox unit? So at some point I said, well, i got to learn a little more about this stuff. So I joined the American Society of Addiction Medicine, which at the time was the American Medical Society on Alcoholism and then became the American Medical Society on Alcoholism and Other Drug Dependencies, which leads to an awkward mnemonic, which would be AMSA-OD. And, and so now you have that, to repeat that yes, whole thing. And, and, then I, <laughs> and so then I, I just I took a lot of courses through them and at some point became certified and, and learned a lot you know, on, the, on my own in d- doing it. But I, why am I still doing it? Because I really enjoy it. I mean, I think I've helped people, but I just I like the field. I think it's important... And I like the people that I work with, and I like the people that I take care of. And um, so my career was half addiction medicine, half emergency medicine. And a few years back, I decided to cut back, and it was the emergency medicine. There was never any doubt that the emergency medicine is what I would cut, cut out early, because I, you know, the addiction piece is um, quite rewarding, and I enjoy it. Yes, it's frustrating at times, but uh, I, I, you know, I like it. It's worth it. That's why I'm still practicing at the age of 65. <laughs> awesome. You do not look 65. <laughs> so I, I have a little bit different. I have a little bit different of a story um, because, as I'd mentioned earlier, I was a drug counselor before I ever went to med school. This was really my calling. I was certified as a drug counselor at the age of 19. I had lost people close to me. Uh, you know, I, I have I have a whole backstory, but I was certified as a drug counselor at 19, and this was, you know, th- th- this was the right place for me. I was fortunate to learn that pretty young. I did finish college, I stayed in the field, and then I had all, I thought I had all these great ideas, but nobody would listen to me because I was only a bachelor's level drug counselor. So I got a brilliant idea that I was going to go to medical school, and then I was going to come back with the same ideas and everybody would listen to me. And it actually has worked out like that. It has worked out like that somewhat. You get those MD and those two initials after your name people suddenly start listening to you whether they should I had the same yeah and I had the same I've learned a little and what I discovered though going through my medical education and I I was a little surprised at this but I discovered you know okay so what's the best specialty you gotta specialize you know with an MD you can't just be an MD so I realized just in my own personal research I saw that I saw all the mental health. This is kind of where I started with the idea of the big four. But I saw pretty early on that in order, in my opinion, to understand addiction in the best way that I possibly could, I had to understand mental health. So I decided to uh, specialize in psychiatry. So I wound up doing a psychiatry residency. Uh, It was, I I was so focused on addiction, it was very hard to get through my surgery rotation. (laughs) I knocked heads with a lot of psychiatrists. Uh, At the time I was in training, which was in the 90s, uh, there was a lot of uh, benzodiazepines. Everybody was just throwing benzodiazepines out there to treat anxiety, which I thought lent itself to addiction. So I, I, I never quite fit into a lot of the models. I tended to always stir up a little trouble wherever I went, but it's worked out. But I get to I get to do what I love every day. I think the main reason I don't burn out is because I understand that people 
People are going to walk their paths. The best I can do, I can be a guide, but I hear a lot of um, burnout, both from doctors and counselors in the field, where they say, I'm just really frustrated, I treat people, I give it my best shot. Everybody relapses, they go out, they come out. <laughs> I, you know, it wasn't intentional, but I've never seen my role like that. Yeah. All I can do is offer guidance. People have to be able to walk, you know, pe people walk their own paths. And I only have so much say over that. I'm not responsible for anybody else's life. I am going to give it my all. If somebody wants to work with me, I'm going to give somebody my best level of expertise. You know, I, I guess people don't agree with me 100% of the time, but I always say if I can't explain what I'm doing, I should not be doing it, and I will explain what I'm doing to patients. I explain why I'm recommending what I'm recommending. And then it's, it's up to the patient. I have had people decide that they no longer want to be in treatment with me. I have had patients in my practice relapse and overdose and die. And I absolutely do feel bad about that. I'm not a robot, but I also recognize I did the best I could, and they really had to, they, they have to walk their paths. So if I was in the medication-assisted treatment business for 30 years, what would a success case look like? Are they even out there? Or do people just drop out of addiction and medication and treatment to chronically relapse? And even if there are success stories, what would be the key ingredients? What is like a typical success story? In recovery, you know, with opiate addiction, Somebody comes in addicted to heroin or prescription opiates. What's the typical, what is the ingredients to a typical success story look like? I don't know if there is a typical success yeah, story. I, I, <laughs> uh, there's ideal success yeah, stories. Yeah, ideal, but, ideal, yeah. Like the, but, some, some uh, of the common ingredients that go into a... Well, the common ingredient with a, per, a person who really wants treatment for their addiction as opposed to just getting on medication-assisted treatment so they don't feel sick. Um, and uh, sometimes that takes a while because initially these people are sick and they just want to feel better. But I think that they, you know, giving them the expectation that you're going to have to do some hard work and I, trying to find the right counselor because I have counselors that are trained in EMDR, counselors that are trained in body position therapy, counselors that are trained in trauma therapy. Sometimes I try to fit the right person with the right counselor, but the, the, the expectation that you're going to have to do some work. It isn't just this pill or this film that's going to take care of things. Yeah, gradually you put your life back together, and, but continuing to do the, the mental health and addiction recovery work, counseling, and then move to decreasing the dose of buprenorphine and gradually getting off it, but still probably having the need for counseling and therapy and perhaps um, psychiatric medications. People, you know, there's a lot of overlapping stuff going on there, and um, we can maybe treat the addiction part and get people off the Suboxone or the buprenorphine, but they still have opioid use disorder. And that's going to be an issue for the rest of their lives. It's not like, okay, bye, see ya, everything's fine. They're still going to need counseling, probably mental health care, and um, recovery work. And recovery work. Yep. I've got, so the ingredients for me when somebody comes into my practice, uh, most people that come in, I would say well over 50% I'm able to diagnose an underlying anxiety condition. Even when they come in, everybody that comes in is in withdrawal because you need to be off your opioid for 24 hours in order to start Suboxone. So everybody that I see new is in you know at least a moderate degree of opioid withdrawal if they're following instructions. So the ingredients for success, what I see is... Number one, to be open to the idea that some of what they're experiencing is not just opioid withdrawal. So if I'm telling them, you know, I think there's anxiety here, the average, you know, the average patient that I see could say, nope, this is just withdrawal right now, I don't have anxiety. And I'm fine with that for the first appointment or two. But the first ingredient for success is an ability to be open to there is something else going on other than I, I need opioids. 
So that's the first, you know, that, that's the first ingredient. The second ingredient is, and I would uh, second what Brian is saying, a willingness to engage with a counselor. And like Brian, I, all counselors are not created equal. Everybody's got personalities. I am not in a big system. I'm in private practice, so I have the flexibility. I can go anywhere in the area to match up the right counselor. I need to be cognizant of what HMO the person has, but I can match somebody up with the right counselor with just about any system, any insurance, just because I've been around a while and I know who's good. So I will, you know, hook them up. But, you know, it's like you can, you know, you can't force somebody to do therapy. So a willingness to engage with a counselor, that is a huge ingredient for success. And also just a continued willingness to be able to Look at, their, look at their own stuff, look at their own issues, look at their own barriers, be open to recovery work rather than I just want to come in and take a medication and I don't really want to look at what's deeper and look at what's driving this. Well, thank you. So we're going to wrap it up with what I call the speed round. Are you game? <laughs> I don't see any way to avoid it. <laughs> I got 10 minutes. So. <laughs> Uh, this is going to be less than that. So I'm just going to ask you five quick questions and you just respond. Um, some are kind of funny and interesting. So ready? Favorite food? Pizza. Pizza. Seafood of any kind. <laughs> Favorite type of music? Um, rock. I mean, rock. I like, uh, indie rock. Indie rock. But but also heavy metal. So there's there's the heavy metal part of me too. That's always going to favorite be there. heavy metal band. Um, Slayer. Slayer. I would never. <laughs> I would. I eyed them up. I would have. I've known them for like probably a few years. But I would have never guess you'd okay, be a Slayer. Okay, here's the thing. I saw Metallica one night and the Indigo Girls the next night and loved both shows. <laughs> <laughs> a modern day Renaissance man. Yes. <laughs> favorite. Yeah. Favorite music. Favorite music. Just probably alternative rock. Nice. My kids have turned me on to a lot of indie stuff, you know, you know, Bonnie Vare and the National and um, Fleet Foxes and all the things that are at Pitchfork and the Eau Claire Festival. And, but I'm still going to Summerfest to see a lot of mainstream stuff. <laughs> Sorry, nice. it's not so much for the I speed round. I love it. <laughs> um, last situation that you laughed the hardest at in the last oh. year or two. Oh wow. Um, just like kind of recalling like something I really laughed. Um, my wife and I were having a bonfire in the backyard and there was some wood next to me and I said, do you want me to put some more on? And she goes, what'd you call me? <laughs> so, so she's one of the funniest people I know. So yeah. stuff, it's just stuff like that. So, you know, cracks me up. So, <laughs> so I've got another funny. You know, my funniest thing is also another partner story. So, um, I was walking with my partner just, you know, down a road in a nice evening. Uh, there were a lot of mosquitoes. We had mosquito spray, and she's like, "Hey, can you spray me a little bit?" So, okay, I just <laughs> kind of I sprayed her, and I was being funny. So I kind of like did circles around her chest. I figured you're not going to see it because it's, you know, it's all going to dissolve. So I did kind of bullseyes on her chest and probably did some other things too. And we got to where we were walking. I think we were going to a Culver's or something. And I realized that it all stuck on, like, it didn't just dissolve. You could see everything that I did. And she walked into the place and I looked at her shirt it was just she was wearing a black t-shirt and I was like oh my god I'm sorry but I could not stop laughing that's good that's good what are your favorite vacation spots um the upper peninsula of Michigan I've got a cabin up there so that I, I you know I, I love it up there I like the Caribbean too but I like Italy oh man <laughs> I, I, just, I travel the world there, there's too many to mention I just got back from a trip from Japan last month and it was absolutely amazing and powerful so that's Japan makes sense that's on my, that is on my brain I never would have thought that I would have you know it would have been as amazing and powerful of a trip as it was but it was it was pretty awesome and the final question is craziest thing you've ever done as a teenager oh man I was a nerd, so I'm trying to think. Um, craziest thing as a teenager. Riskiest. Risky. Yeah. Funniest. Funniest. Um, one of the 
the best thing was a group of six guys where our parents, as seniors in high school, let us take a big RV for five days. And it was the most free I'd ever felt in my life. I went home and asked my parents, can we do this? And they, I, we all thought they were going to say no, but we were nerdy students. We were good students, and they trusted us, and we were going to be going to college, you know, in six months. So that was the, it was a freedom thing. And we were, we, the thing is we were well-behaved on it, so it wasn't really risky other than driving a the pro like this is before they made RVs. It was like the custom-made thing that one guy's dad had made. It was like a big Winnebago that went 30 miles an hour uphill. <laughs> Where did you go? We went to Hannibal, Missouri, and that's as far as we could get in it's three, two and a half days, and then back. And we did some filming and made a uh, movie for our English class with Mark going to Mark Twain's hometown. We made a movie that we all got A-pluses on, and it was yes. fun. <laughs> that part makes it. I'm definitely nerds. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I was not. I was hoping I was going to get to uh, duck out of this one. I was, <laughs> I was not. I was a rebellious, obnoxious, substance-involved teenager. Um, so there's probably too many. I can't even come up Billions. with a story. Yes, the one, the one I do remember, though, that I'm really fortunate that nothing really bad happened was uh, a very close friend of mine in high school, uh, she got to, her father had a delivery van and she got to like take it to school because he delivered at night. So I was, I think it was lunchtime or something, we were in the high school parking lot. I was just like up on, I think I was the only one, I was like just up on the roof and she just like peeled out of the parking lot. I assume she knew I was up there, but I was, hold, I was holding on Man. for dear life. <laughs> I do not know how I managed to stay. I am not known for my balance. I do not know how I managed to not come off of that van. So oh, that's crazy. <laughs> well, I want to thank both of you, Ryan and Matt, for uh, taking the time to do the interview. Yeah, it was fun. And uh, it's been great having you share yes, your knowledge you and wisdom. It was absolutely fun. Thank you, Ted. Thanks, Ted. All right, thank you. Hey there, Recovery Nation. Producer John here again. Thank you so much to Drs. Matt Felgus and Brian Locken for sharing their time with us. To hear more, check out our previous four-part episode with Dr. Felgus. If you liked today's episode, you can subscribe, leave a review, and listen to past episodes on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. And visit fullpotentialnow.org for your free TED tools, including where to find a rehab center near you. This episode featured music by Pat Reinholtz and me, John Procruzzi. Thanks for listening. <laughs>